welcome to the Marion Direct, the podcast that breaks down the news for Marion students by Marion students. I'm your host, Miguel Spotting Price, and this is my co-host. Hello, my name is Sean Efron. And we're here to break down the news in a way that should be understandable and explain to everyone listening why exactly the news matters. So to start this first podcast off, I wanted to start this off by talking about a tech company that, well, everyone at Marion has probably heard of and most students probably use, Apple. Because the Apple Corporation has just announced that they are going to be making a massive change to their newest line of iPhones, the iPhone 15s. This change is going to be that the chargers for these iPhone 15s won't actually require the lightning bolt chargers anymore. The ones that only Apple devices have continued to use for uh, however many years now. It's five years by now, yeah. Uh, Lightning's an older design and they've done a couple of generations, but in general... They've always had this proprietary system while everyone else, like Samsung, has used first uh, miniature USB, then micro USB, and then finally USB-C. This is the first time I can think of that Apple's gone with a standardized charger. Oh, yeah. And this is pretty big um, for some maybe not exactly obvious reasons. Firstly, it's because Apple isn't making us buy a specifically new charger for their products anymore, which is really nice. Now you can actually use the same charger you use for your laptop with any Apple device or that comes out after this newest series. And, you know, the strangest thing of all, of course, uh, this change is not because of the United States. This is actually due to European markets. Yeah. So part of what makes this change of Apple so fun is, as John said, it's due to EU sanctions. The EU has recently handed down some economic regulations that state that all smartphones have to use the same charger type. So that includes Apple, and any Apple device and smartphone sold in Europe has to use the same standardized charger, the USB-C. Which, I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about. As Americans, we're used to a certain economic dominance. This goes back to the 50s and 60s with the Marshall Plan rebuilding Europe. We forget that we aren't the only players in the town anymore. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, it's likely that the EU probably has more global economic power than U.S. regulators at least in terms of being able to make big changes. The EU has more of a history as well of laying down large industry-wide changes and standards for all types of products. Um, yeah, as Americans, we're used to proprietary systems, we're used to a more uh, almost Wild West system of economics. But judging by the recent successes of Europe in influencing companies like Apple and in just expanding their markets, especially in Asia and Africa, as Americans, we might want to shift our own paradigm of economic development. Whereas we are very capitalistic here in the U.S., generally whatever one co- whatever company wants to do tends to go fairly, fairly strongly. Uh, yeah, well, the U.S. has more of a history of laissez-faire. The EU has always had a heavier system of governmental regulations. There's still very much a uh, liberal free market area. In fact, some of the markets in Europe are argued to be freer than those in America, especially in, ironically, the Nordic companies that everyone thinks are socialist. But in reality, uh, the EU is notable not necessarily for lack of free markets, but for a very different application of them. Though there have been complaints against the EU regulations. That was one of the main complaints that Great Britain had when it decided to leave the EU. They complained that EU regulators had too much power and were using that to largely negatively affect British companies. believe vacuum cleaners and their regulations were one of the big issues that... GB had in terms of the EU regulators. Oh yeah, there's always, especially in recent years, been attention 
both between EU nations and Brussels, you know, the center of it all, and EU nations in Germany, because it feels to a lot of people like Germany has too much economic influence. So it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic develops. But in the meantime, things happening an ocean away are now affecting our own experiences. That isn't to say that that's the only issue an ocean away that's still affecting you. Yeah, well, it's still affecting the U.S. and even us here in Indiana and our fine campus of Marion. Because just a few days ago, um, North Korea leader Kim Jong Un just arrived in Russia for talks with President Vladimir Putin. So what the talks are actually going to be over and any specific deals being made have still yet to be well determined. There it has been a great deal of speculation as to what the two leaders will be talking about in this upcoming session. Indeed, and it's interesting to observe, actually, especially because whatever we get, of course, will be filtered by both nations' uh, very extensive propaganda networks. But what we do seem to know is that there's a potentiality of arms deals between the two nations. Mainly because North Korea, while it likes to produce weapons, doesn't have a huge amount of technology. And while Russia is currently at war, it's unable to produce as many weapons and ammunition as it is using up. Some sources have indicated that Russia has been launching upwards of 11 million uh, artillery shells at Ukraine over the last year, with another another couple million tossed on that for just 2023 alone. However, Russia only produces 2.5 million artillery shells per year, which is, if you do the math, causing them to run out really quickly. And... They need to resupply from somewhere if they want to keep up the assault that they've been launching in Ukraine. North Korea, who likes producing weapons, is a great place to start. Oh yeah, I mean, things like Russian artillery shells, frankly put, they aren't technologically advanced pieces of equipment. What they need are bullets, shells, and rifles. And even a tin pot dictator like Kim Jong-un could produce those. What Kim Jong-un can't produce are modern fighters, modern armored vehicles, Anything that takes microchips or runs on any form of electricity, the North Koreans are actually still using a 1950s Soviet MiG as their mainstay fighter jet. Oh yeah, it's really interesting that, the so- well, in the United States, no one does military as expensively, as massively as the United States does. Our military technology is some of the best in the world, but even the Soviets are a bit behind us there. Exactly how much it is is kind of weird to determine in terms of modern warfare, but the Soviet military technology is probably at least a decade behind us at the very least. Some uh, experts actually estimate about two decades. The most recent Soviet tank, uh, the mythical T-14 Armata that still hasn't actually been deployed, likely only matches our designs from the 1980s. Wow, okay, so they're way a bit farther behind than I thought. That said... Uh, North Korea is farther behind them. They're still using 1980s level Soviet designs. So, yeah, way behind even where Russia is right now. Um, so, if Russia can hand off military technology and in exchange for Tim Pot dictator Kim Jong-un's rifles, shells, and ammunition, that's a pretty good trade for both parties. Now, the question, of course, is... Uh in my eyes, at least, one of their intermediary, of course, China. Uh, the Chinese have a strange relationship with both countries. They see, in many ways, as far as we can tell, for the Chinese, North Korea is sort of like a dog that they have to keep on a tight lead. And Russia is a pseudo-ally. But we've also seen moments of tension between the two. So it's interesting that the Chinese are willing to allow this kind of deal to go forward. 
haven't heard anything from China yet, but the prospect of trade between these two countries is rather interesting because 95% of North Korea's trade is through China. Russia and North Korea actually have practically no trade at this moment in time, and that's one of the things that Kim Jong-un likes to point out when uh, likes to point out when people start accusing him of having close military ties with Russia. So whether this will continue to be the case or the China will allow Russia to step in as a trade partner for North Korea still remains to be seen. However, while the talk uh, while it is highly suspected that military and military technology will be on the negotiation table between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. What the two leaders have actually been revealed to be talking about, at least so far, is way out of left field and not related to military at all. Most notably, space technology. Vladimir Putin even welcomed Kim Jong-un and the site of the negotiations is at a space base for Russia. As I recall, Putin actually gave uh, Kim Jong-un a glove from a space suit that had actually been you know, used in the Russian cosmonaut program. The Koreans have always been interested in rocketry uh, for obvious reasons, but also satellites. They are well behind in communications and surveillance technology compared to the West, so they would love to get their hands on, especially spy satellites, you know, cameras in space. That would be a major win. Oh, yeah, especially considering that North Korea has failed to launch a spy satellite twice this year alone. So... If you're talking about way behind on technology, that's on a whole nother scale. And it isn't readily available because their main partner of trade, China, isn't giving them space and satellite technology to use. For Russia, well, it, it's going to be an interesting situation at the very least. Yeah. And we'll see how it develops. What's It's part, I think, of a wider trend where the West has uh, consistently been placing economic sanctions on nations like Russia, like North Korea, like China, uh, like Syria or Iran, anywhere where you have dictatorships that are oppressive or militarizing and invading all their neighbors. But what that ends up doing is effectively solidifying the sort of east-west cultural divide that's existed for a few centuries and encouraging these nations to form their own economic groups. Uh, the North Korea-Russia discussions right now, those talks are only the most recent example. We also had BRICS, the, let's see, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa economic organization inviting a couple new member states just a month ago. It's an interesting situation, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this develops from the West's perspective. Yep, especially considering that both Russia and China are permanent members of the uh, United Nations uh, Security Council which has already been important because Russia has been blocking the UN from issuing a whole bunch of sanctions on North Korea, but the fact that they're violating the sanctions they're currently placed on them. So where this develops, we won't know, but it's going to be interesting to see. On the home front, I hope no one was planning to buy a new car anytime soon. Oh boy, because stuff just happened. As of last night of the recording of this podcast, the Union of Auto Workers just went on strike against three major car manufacturers, those being Ford, GM, and, and Stellantis. There are 10,000 workers currently on strike at three separate factories against these three companies. The Union of Auto Workers has been calling for massive deal negotiations and renegotiations between these three companies and has been asking all three companies increase worker pay by upwards of 40 to 
46%, as well as reducing the number of days employees have to work from five days a week to four days a week while still maintaining a five-week pay rate. It's an interesting situation, to say the least. I mean, it's been projected that just with the current trajectory of the strike, these auto companies are going to be losing upwards of a billion dollars, but the strikers themselves could lose about $900 million in wages easily in the first just couple of weeks of this. Oh, yeah. Though that we won't see numbers that high unless all 140,000 union of auto workers members that work at these three companies go on strike. We're still likely to see massive amounts of economic downturn, especially in the areas where these factories are located, with these factories mostly being in Midwestern states, well, pretty much right around Indiana. So... If these workers continue to be on strike, there will probably be some economic effects they hit us here in Indiana. What those exactly those end up being depend on how many workers end up going on strike and for how long. As of right now, nobody knows how long they're going to be on strike for because these demands are pretty extreme. Sean, what would you say the likelihood of these demands actually being accepted by these by these three companies are? Uh, honestly, I don't think they will be. I also don't think that's the goal. This is going to be uh, you know, traditional bartering. That means you start with demands that you know won't be met and you work down to what you want. But I do think the points that the unions are not going to you know, back off on are, and understandably, increase of pay with inflation and at least a little bit more pay, perhaps some more time off, better benefits. An interesting issue in my eyes, at least, is the issue of temps, if you're familiar with that one. Yeah, one of the big points for the unions, and this is something that I think is going to be essential to whatever deal comes out of this, is uh, the practice of hiring employees who effectively do the work for a full-time employee as a temporary, which means that they don't need to receive union benefits. I think the main things we'll see is pay rate increase and a better situation for temporary workers and more restrictions on how long someone can be considered a temp. Something that I found very interesting is the companies have each all put forward proposals of increasing wages by 20% at the very least. And the union has subsequently rejected all of these proposals. One of the things that I think they're not going to be compromising on is the work week, because all these companies have, have promised to switch to electric vehicles sometime in the next five to 10 years. What exactly the date is varies between the three companies. However, electric vehicles are kind of interesting from an auto manufacturer standpoint because they're way easier to make in terms of manpower hours with electric vehicles requiring roughly 40% less human work hours than standard combustion vehicles. So it's easier at the very least for companies to produce a whole bunch of these cars without nearly as many workers. Cutting down the amount of time the workers have to work would prevent the Union of Auto Workers from seeing massive layoffs across these three companies. That mm. said, if it's a 40% reduction in the amount of worker hours required, and the union is only requesting a reduction in a 20% reduction in work time, then they're not going to account for all the... Uh, they're not going to be able to prevent, at the very least, a massive amount of layoff between these three companies alone. And once again, they have over 100,000 employees in terms of manufacturing alone working at just these three companies. So where this ends up, that's in a situation that I'm most interested in following. I mean, this has been an issue for the last 200 years. Ever since the very first steam-powered loom, people have been uh, experiencing an issue of automation reducing the 
need for work hours. It's something that we pretend is new to this era of robots and, uh, you know, manufacturing machines, but this is an old issue. That said, so far we've covered foreign politics, economics, and even domestic labor issues. However, there's still the most juicy issue for any anyone who's following the elections right now. American politics, and particularly the Republican primaries, because this has been a mess. Right now, the Republican Party is currently searching for the candidate they want to and will nominate to run against Joe Biden in the 2024 election. Their search has been chaotic, to say the least, over the last couple months. And with the first debate, almost a month behind us now, and the second debate coming up quickly in the quickly ahead of us, I want to just run down who exactly each of the candidates are and what exactly they're proposing for their bid for the presidential seat. Starting off, of course, there's always Donald J. Trump. This man has been at the center of American politics since he was elected way back eight year, well, nearly eight years ago now. And he continues to be, at the very least, in the spotlight for American politics even after being ousted from the presidency by Joe Biden. It's Kind of amazing to see. He's maintained polling rates, essentially what percent of Republican voters would be most prefer him to be their nominee for president, at over 50% in practically all polls for the last six months at the very least. Even before he nominated himself for the Republican candidacy, he was one of the favorites to... He was one of the favorites. It's complicated. I'll admit I've not been following this election particularly closely, but what I will know is the Republican Party right now is experiencing a voter split that it hasn't had since uh, Teddy Roosevelt broke off with his Bull Moose Party. In this case, once again, we have a large personality, though not necessarily a Teddy Roosevelt, who has garnered a significant amount of a fo- significant following within the Republican Party. Everyone else is naturally in shadow, and they're trying to play a balance between the persons who aligned, say, with John McCain Republicans versus the more Trumpist form of Republicanism. These are almost two very different parties uh, wearing a, you know, a trench coat and a top hat and pretending to be one political party. It's He has a chance, but the greater danger is that the, for the Republican Party is just that they won't have enough of a unified base for any of their candidates to get anywhere. Yeah, that is very much the biggest danger the Republican Party faces right now. That said, while Trump is polling rather high, there are lawsuits that are catching up with him. And whatever your opinion on our foreign president may be, people are also just getting tired of him being in the spotlight and being the center of American politics. So there may be a chance for other candidates to capitalize on Trump fatigue to try and take some of his polling numbers. Among the other Republican candidates, of whom the best are barely polling at double digits, there's been a mad grab for all of the uh, for support from all the other factions in the Republican Party. And one of the most notable is Chris Christie, who's avidly campaigning on anti-Trump po- policy and rhetoric. Essentially, he's trying to be the person the Republican Party goes to if they decide that, hey, Trump was a bad choice. And once again, whatever your opinion on the foreign president may be, it's gotten him pretty far, at the very least onto the debate stage, at the first Republican primary debate. Do you have any familiarity with Chris Christie, Sean? Uh, to a degree, I'm a former New Jersey resident. He's, honestly, he's a milquetoast politician. 
But right now, for the Republicans, that might be their best chance. The Between the last two elections, the entire country is growing more and more tired of the options put forth by both parties. And a more, I guess you could say, traditional politician, while people grew very tired, of course, of that form of politics, may well feel like return to form for people enough to garner some significant support. Mm-hmm. Honestly, he might not be that bad of a choice if what he does is just sit down and not do much for four years, just giving the na- nation a chance to rest and recover after the whirlwind of chaos and craziness that the last eight years have been. So, he, yeah, if he can capitalize on that fatigue, he may well have a chance. But... It doesn't seem like that's going to get him all the way to the Republican candidacy right now, especially given that Trump is currently polling so high, in addition to the fact that there are significant opponents to him who are campaigning and polling higher than him as Trump's secondary or as Trump 2.0 or Trump's heir apparent. These two being uh, Ron DeSantis and Victor Ramaswamy, respectively. With Ron DeSantis currently polling at roughly second place, with anywhere between 10 to 14% of Republicans supporting him for the Republican candidacy, depending on which news site you look at for your statistics. He is currently positioning himself as roughly Trump 2.0, a less scandalous, uh, maybe less bombastic, and combative version of President Donald Trump, though however much that pans out, we'll see. But, yeah, he's campaigning as the new and improved Trump candidate. That said, he still has to make it out of Trump's shadow and actually compete with the former president if he wants to get the Republican candidacy. It's a very dangerous balance. The party did buy very much into a cult personality. And now what they're finding, for one thing, is that they've alienated part of the voter base. And it's unlikely they'll be able to tap into the Democratic voter base. The undecided middlings have often now been pushed either into sort of political homelessness or into a position where they're actually being pushed to the left. I think that if the Republicans keep buying into candidates like Trump or his, I guess you could call them, yeah, heirs or... Trump 2.0s or secondaries or people following after his style. Indeed, I think they're going to continue losing that more undecided, unaffiliated middle group of voters who are, frankly put, essential for winning elections. That said, DeSantis does have some potential to overcome this, uh, well, voter bleed out the Republican Party has been seeing. And he has the history to say that, well, he turned one of the biggest swing states in the nation, Florida, solidly red, at the very least, in electing him governor. So, hey, I mean, he did it to Florida. Maybe he can do it to some of the other swing states. But in my opinion, I don't think that's very likely. In fact, I think that there's another candidate who has a better chance of polling with Democratic and even more homeless voters, as you said yourself, and that's Nikki Haley. She's a rather interesting Republican candidate because she's a woman, daughter of Indian immigrants, and has been elected in staunchly conservative North Carolina against, well, white male Protestant competition, who the Republican Party generally tends to lean on as hey, you look the part, go up for the job in states like North Carolina. Yeah, and if she can overcome the sort of uh, WASP focus of Republicans in nations in uh, states like North Carolina, maybe she'll have a chance. We'll see. I think there's a... 
it's a peculiar playing field this year. Mm-hmm. It's also, if she does get the Republican candidacy, she's probably one of the best choices to run against Joe Biden. Because, I mean, there is a gender gap in voting between Republicans and Democrats with more women tending to vote for Democratic candidates. But if the Republican candidate is herself a woman, that'll probably pull some people from the Democratic side to the Republican side. However, it's unlikely she's actually going to get the Republican candidacy right now because she's kind of preaching a hard line against the Republican Party. Pointing out the Republican Party hasn't had the best track record of the last four years and kind of painting a bit of a negative picture to many Republican voters as to the current state of the party. She's effectively pointing out the Republican Party is fractured and having some issues and a lot of people aren't exactly like... No, uh, people don't generally like to... uh hear about problems in their own house, but it's there. I'm intrigued to see how it goes. I'm There's a part of me which wonders how long the Republican Party is really going to survive if they continue on this path of divergent political ideas. Uh, parties have risen and fallen. Uh, the Whigs used to be one of the most potent forces in American politics, and now most of us forget they exist. So I think it's also important to consider that parties change over time. Parties rise and fall, as you said. And the nation hasn't gone 100 years without some massive uh, change in political parties. Even in the 1900s, there was a massive demographic change between Republican and Democratic voters, mostly done through Nixon's Southern strategy, which, well, changed the face of American politics to this day. So, well, who knows? Maybe the Republican Party is doomed to fail, but there will definitely be some other party who rises up to replace them. Indeed, and it'll be intriguing to see how that develops. Well, that's all for the Marion Direct for this month. This is Miguel Spying Price. This is Sean Nefron. Signing off for now.